It's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast with the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week, we'll break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on the show itself. This week, we will be discussing and spoiling only up to Season 2, Episode 3, Virtu e Fortuna, directed by Richard Lewis, written by Robert Patino, Jonathan Nolan, and Lisa Joy. Richard Lewis is not to be confused with a comedian, but he is... Gonna say. <laughs> He's a director who's worked on a lot of Westworld episodes. Um, and then uh, Virtu e Fortuna is a famous sort of Machiavellian line from The Prince or, or a concept from his his treatise on leadership, The Prince. Um, do you want me to read you, Richard, a little description of Virtu e Fortuna that I yes. found on a website called military.com? Per favore. Read. <laughs> Piacere. All right. So the two variables were what Machiavelli called virtue e fortuna. Virtue in Italian means not virtue, um, not certainly not moral virtue, but strength, power, prowess, control, the ability to compel objective reality to obey your will, the ability to impose your will on something else. Machiavelli's other category, fortuna, means not fortune in a sense of fortune and wealth, but luck, chance, or fate. All the things you could not foresee or control. Machiavelli, Machiavelli's formula for success is the maximization of virtue and the minimization of fortuna, or the conquest by virtue of fortuna. So, um, I think we can certainly see that Dolores mm, is yes. working hard on that virtue. Um, I, I'm not sure what we want to say about the fortuna yet, but maybe we'll get we'll get to that before yeah. the episode ends. Richard, do you want to talk about the opening of this episode of Westworld? We, we took a little trip, didn't we? Uh, well, sort of. Yeah, we um, we have. It's been you know said that there will be other parts of the park, that other worlds that we will see, uh, and the big one that we has been teased was the Shogun world in sort of feudal Japan. Uh, so it was came as quite a surprise when this episode opened, and we were not in feudal Japan, or nor were we in Westworld. We were in 1930s colonial kind of Raj era India. Yes. Uh, with peacocks and palm trees and, um, you know, the sort of faint strains of, of you know, sitar music, uh, you know, all this very white colonialist fantasy. Yes. Um, if you want to talk about, like, 
white people doing terrible things to brown people, which is like a lot of what Westworld is, uh, then that certainly is what the Raj era of India uh, is. And we've got all the pith helmets you could possibly want. This strikes like, I, I don't want to hunt Bengal tigers. I don't want to subjugate uh, like, you know, native like people of India at all. But I will say that like, it never appealed to me to go to Westworld, but to go to like 1930s and like, sip gin and tonics um, with a bunch of British people, that does appeal to me. I kind of want Agatha Christie world, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. in India, but this is closer to something that I would want to do if I were to go into a Delos uh, park. But we meet, right off the bat, we meet two new characters. This is like, this is a classic cold open sort of thing. We get uh, someone named Nicholas, who is played by an actor, Neil Jackson from Sleepy Hollow, and someone named Grace, uh, portrayed by Katya Herbers, who I know most recently from The Leftovers. Do you know her from other things, Richard? No, no, that's it. All right, that's it. So Katya and Neil are two new cast members, except only one of them probably is going to be in another episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, Rich and I were talking right before we started recording that... Ramin Javadi, the composer of Westworld, probably had a lot of fun this season because, you know, in this episode, he gets to restyle music that we know, um, not just on a player piano. The end, we'll get to some Japanese music, but this starts with, uh, you know, a sitar-ish arrangement of the White Stripes Seven Nation Army. So, fun, right? We're having fun. Yeah. And um, we we get these two characters, Grace and Nicholas, like the show really wants to establish to you the stakes of what's going to happen to them later. So the show needs to like really confirm to you that these are two humans, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what this nonsense at the beginning with the guns and the sex is about. They're like, let's find the sexiest, most violent way to like really assure you that these are two humans and they know the ins and outs of the park and all of that. And it was funny because I you know, had never really thought that like, oh yeah, like real people might meet and hook up in this thing. You know, because yeah. I just assumed it was people just going to have sex with the host. But like, no, you know, in certain situations, especially someone in Grace's case who who seems to be a seasoned um vet at the park, um like, yeah, maybe like the, the thrill of of sleeping with a, you know, a host person is or host robot it is kind of gone. And so the actual thrill is to find the human and and you know where who who's there. Yeah, and this is this concept that they hammer a lot over on the the Wild West version of this park, which is something real, something true. This is something William, like this is William's whole season one thing. It's like something true, something real. Um, and so like their hookup. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be fun if someone like got like asked you how you met your your husband and you're like, oh, you know, uh, kill, killing Bengal tigers. Or would you come up with like a different meet cute story, like the one that you tell people? Is this like the OK Cupid? Like you don't want to say I'm, we met on online dating? Yeah, like, I feel like admitting that you're ter- partly turned on by the subjugation of hundreds of millions of, of Indian yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, uh, it might be like not the best like party line. Not great, not great. So like maybe there's like a virtuous park, you know? Oh, we met at the like charitable park. Well, there is you know, the homestead family f- friendly part of Westworld that's you know been alluded to um where i believe Maeve's daughter is supposed to be like so that so presumably yes there are more wholesome parts of the park that you could say we yeah just met riding horses <laughs> that's fine we right. were just doing that's that it. it's yeah. totally fine um 
And then we, you know, so we cut from this, this like sex scene to uh, them on, I mean, it's spectacular. Them on the back of these elephants. They're about to go on this tiger hunt. They come to this encampment. And as you mentioned, Grace, who's a seasoned, a seasoned guest, like knows something's up. She's like, usually there's more hosts here. To and cook and attend to you and all yeah, that. Yeah. Where's my, like, where are my kippers? Like what's happening? And uh, we see some ominous blood on the tent and she she catches on quickly that something's wrong. Uh, Nicholas is a little dumber about it, so he dies, and she manages to kill <clears throat> this host who's coming after her. He says these violent delights have violent ends. So apparently, like Shakespeare is not just for Westworld, but for Eastworld as well, or wherever we are. And um, but before all that, and then and then okay, we'll get to the next part. But before all that, I should say that she was looking at a map. Uh, that she really didn't want this Nicholas character to see her looking at. That was like the rough terrain and then these two hexagons sort of interlocking that she had in a little notebook on her person. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Grace, maybe like the man in black or maybe like any given character on Lost is looking for some something that's not part of the main game, that she's after something else. So that would be my guess based on that map she had in her pocket. Then a tiger shows up. <laughs> yeah. And there's all this stressful stuff um, that, you know, it's a, it's a device used in a lot of like thrillers, action movies of like sh- shaky hands trying to load the, you know, the, the, um, the shell casings into the gun. And I just think this is a really nice, um, it, it's, it's a, I think this is a really well done scene. It's like tense and, uh, but fun at the same time. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, like I said, it's a it's a classic cold open. Except I think we're it you know it's it's not going to end like a cold open and bones ends where like she's dead because we see her again later in the episode. But this does solve the mystery of uh, episode one, which is how how the heck did that Bengal tiger wash up ashore of Westworld? Uh, we see like her get chased. She she is so seasoned that she knows sort of like how to get out of her park and into sort of a, like an aqueduct sort of area. And then she's um, peering down over this body of water and then the tiger jumps on her and they both go down into the water. It's great. It's a, it's a great scene. Um, we watched a screener, we should say. So I don't, and there's like a disclaimer at the beginning of the screener that says not all the digital effects are finished. Mm. So I don't know if the tiger, like the tiger looked pretty good. Not, I would say the you know not John Favreau's The Jungle Book good (laughs) like but pretty good for an HBO show pretty dang good Uh, I don't know if that's what it's going to look like in the in the finished product this this sequence also though does um, like bring up a question that we talked about last week with the kind of remote facility that didn't know that this was happening like would Raj World or whatever still be carrying on like normal if Westworld was I mean wouldn't there be communication between I don't know that 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 feels like a little bit um unclear but maybe this is happening immediately at the like like um that's what I th- concurrently I th- with the beginning of the massacre right maybe that's what it is I think timeline wise like Dolores opens fire on the party at the end of season one and then the hosts in this Raj world go berserk right and the safari's ruined. <laughs> And um, I'm Claire Fallon and I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters and hosts of the show. Love to see it. 
Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. You know, tigers are coming for you. And this is another thing that we should say. Um that the Nolans made very clear last season is that the only animal in the park that's not programmed are the flies. I I mean, we can talk about why if we want to, but like, you know, that's a robot tiger. Obviously that's a robot tiger. Those are robot buzzards. Like, you know, like these, every, every animal you see uh, is controlled. And I guess the reaction of this tiger uh, is, yeah, I'm going to maul, like, you know, presumably if it's on its programming, it can't maul a guest, but uh, we're we're off the program now. All right. Then we got our opening credits, and we are back at present day. That is two weeks after. I like you calling it the massacre. I'm going to call it that, too. I like it. Two weeks after the massacre. Uh, Betty Gabriel's character, Maling, Carl Strand, Bernard, Stubbs, this whole group uh, is sort of trying to figure out what happened. Um, and then we get Charlotte. So we get <laughs> we get Charlotte and Bernard, who apparently haven't seen each other in a little while. So it's not like Charlotte and Bernard were together those whole two weeks, and then and then he jumped in the water and got washed up on shore. Like Charlotte's like, oh, you made it. I didn't think you had it in you. My question to you, Richard, is in this moment when Charlotte is looking at him so appraisingly, do you think in this moment she knows that Bernard is a robot. I kind of think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that she would be that flippant with him about his survival, you know? Yeah. Because he, you know, if she believed that him to be Bernard the real person or or you know, the human being who's who's so integral to the park, I don't think that she would be treating him so casually, you know? Yeah, I think my assessment is that in episode one, when we saw them like still in formal wear, like her still in her gold gown, her like, le- you know, going with him all over the park, I think at that moment, she still thought he was human. Yes. And something has happened in the intervening two weeks where not only she has decided he's a robot, but she also, she asks him, like, if he found Abernathy. And she did one of those, like, hmm, he always seems to be, you know, eluding our grasp, doesn't yeah. he? Like, yeah. like she's accusing him of something. Yeah. So um, that seems to be the subtext of, and we get, we fill in some of that those blanks in this episode but not we'll yeah. we'll presumably get more of and also like bernard has done a lot of robotic shit around her <laughs> like he's been <laughs> bleeding white goo from his head he's shot you know gave himself the shot because he was glitching out like yes technically she was like getting changed in the next room and like didn't see but maybe she did you know like he hasn't right. been that good at hiding it well, yeah we'll we'll find out if we've already seen the moment when she grokked to him being yeah. like a robot or if we have yet to see it but uh we flash back to two weeks ago, and Bernard and Charlotte are looking for Abernathy uh, to remind everyone Abernathy has like 35 years of proprietary information in his head, uploaded to his head, our, our walking uh, USB like drive, thumb drive. And Charlotte needs it, or else they're not going to get extracted. <laughs> and Bernard is helping her find him. And we see him because this 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 uh, backs up my formal wear theory mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. first episode because he's been rounded up with the rest of the guests because he's in modern dress and he's uh, being held hostage by the Rebus character and some of his cohorts and uh, yeah so this you know whereas. Um, Charlotte is passing a little bit more incognito because she's wearing like some Western duds, I think would be yeah, I, my assessment. Yeah. I have a question about 
what what the logistics were or what the logic, the thinking was in in having Abernathy, this host who had already been glitching out because he saw the photo. Why why choose him for this very important mission? You know, or was it just a coincidence? I think it's a coincidence. I everyone in cold storage is supposed to have been uh, emptied. You know, like hard mm-hmm. rebooted and drained out. It's possible that like whatever Ford did to wake everyone up, like mess that up. Right. Like it's possible that if Ford hadn't woken everyone up, like Abernathy was emptied out. And so he would just have this other programming, which is like, I got to get on the train. That's my, that's my prime directive. I right. have to get on the train. Um, eh, but the the awakening but yeah i mean it is a very convenient coincidence that last season they walked into a room full of naked robot bodies and they're like oh let's pick that guy the one that the audiences know who he is um I, and, and if i had to guess i would say not just that the writers had in mind sort of what that choice would mean for dolores but also um lewis hertham did such a good job in his earlier scenes i think he was intended to just be like a one-off sort of guest star in the pilot. Right. And they brought him back because he was so good. So that would be my guess. But, you know, there there's this, like, dumb little ruse where Bernard and Charlotte, like, you know, isolate Rebus. They hard port into him, uh, which is like... I liked terrible. it. I like when they use these little things on the, on the fly, in the field. I think it's fun. Remember last week um, when Dolores, uh, she uh, shoots the... the the guy played by Jonathan Tucker and then immediately yeah. revives him. Like, I like it sure. when they do this. It's it's kind of fun seeing them use the technology in a more like immediate like application. The only thing I would say is like, it reminds me of like what you were saying about terraforming in the first episode where like this whole like hard porting in and like I can change their personality on the fly sort of thing. Uh, I don't think it should be overused, I guess is all I would right. say. Right. Yes. But, Sparingly in moderation. Yeah. Yeah. But they turned Rebus into from like a, a bad guy to a good guy, which explains why later when we saw him die on the beach in episode one, he's like, shoot a woman, not on my watch. Like he's become this like super virtuous. Oh, God, that's right. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah Boy yeah, Scout of a yeah, host yeah. Uh, because of this hard port programming that Bernard God, did that's here. like so, intricate plotting, you know? So, yeah. And so that like that, I mean, if that is the same Bernard on that beach two weeks from now, like maybe he has some guilt. He's like, oh, I definitely put him in front of that bullet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm the one who made him into this virtuous defender of women. So, um, yeah. So then Rebus comes back and kills all his cohorts and, uh, you know, they untie Abernathy. But then some confederados roll up and Charlotte runs off on a horse and Bernard puts his hand up. So, like, possibly, we don't know, but possibly that's the last time Charlotte and Bernard saw each other until that scene where they're reunited. Um, yeah, it seemed to me it was. but It could. It, yeah. But. Maybe she's going to see him do some super robot-y shit later. We'll yeah. find out. Um, and then we cut over to Dolores. This feels like it's in the same time. It is in the same timeline. Same timeline. Uh, Dolores, Craddock, played by Jonathan Tucker, Teddy, are all riding into this encampment, which we find out is got the great name of Fort Forlorn Hope, um, which is a... Um, it's a new location. Like we we revisited Pariah last week, but this Fort Forlorn Hope, as far as I know, is a new location. And um, do you know? I just wanted to check in really quickly to make sure that like you and by proxy all of our listeners like know who the Confederados are. It was uh, post Civil War, right? Yeah, and these yeah. were Southern soldiers who refused to kind of re-enter, you know, be Americans again, or sort of, you know, like uh, be with the Union, kind right. of. Refuse- so they went to Mexico. Yeah. 
Yeah. So they refuse to admit that they like that the Civil War is over. I think they call themselves like the uh, the the Army of Virginia or something, whatever, the Honorable Army of Virginia or something like that. But yeah, they go to Mexico to sort of like try their fortune. So they're all like wearing their Confederate Army gray. Uh, so they look like soldiers, but they're not soldiers. They're mercenaries. That's just a, like, I, I've had some people ask me like, so are they soldiers? Is the war going on? What? No, it's post-war. They're just still wearing their, their I mean, uniforms. It's real Wild West shit. I mean, it's like, it's just like, they were lawless, but they sort of organize in a way that you would think that they have authority, but they don't actually have any authority, you know, conferred upon them by any government, you know. Right. And they still, you know, they still are obeying ranks of like colonel and major right. and stuff like that. But they're not, they're not like, yeah, they have no authority of the United States behind them. So they ride into this fort. Um, Teddy, virtuous Boy Scout Teddy is very dismayed at like the... Like that, these are their allies that they're allying themselves with the Confederados, and uh, and he calls them animals, and Dolores calls them children, which is some real condescending messiah shit from her. So you know, there we go. Uh, and then we cut over to the narrative that I'm more interested in, <laughs> way more interested in, which is Maeve, Hector, Sizemore, um, and we get some Ghost Nation, and, and like this is something that we talked about. Earlier on, because of who they've cast for season two, I feel like Ghost Nation is going to have a lot more to do and a lot more in depth to do. That's not quite the case in this episode. I'm not. I wouldn't say there's a lot of depth here, but uh, we get we get some um, members of Ghost Nation who are part of Maeve's old like homestead narrative that yeah. they are the ones who like scalped her, her daughter. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because you have in one episode. Uh, you know, a hearkening to colonial India, and then uh, you know, Native American, American Indian population. So you have hosts who are oppressed by this their sort of makers playing people oppressed by their colonizers. It, there's just a really interesting like dynamic there, and also like racially speaking, there's kind of an implication that most of the the guests of Westworld are white, you know? Yeah. Like I'm trying to think, I think we saw like a black family in season one, episode one, like, you know, this like little boy, like goes up to Maeve and talking to him. But for the most part, I would agree with you. Or, or, or I guess more specifically, most of the guests of this vast, whatever Delos operated thing is most of the guests at the ones that kind of center on (laughs) these very troublesome times for uh you know people of color and and you know colonialism and all that maybe the, the only people who, who that appeal that specific experience appeals to is like largely yeah. white people i don't know anyway it's just like an interesting thing and i'm glad that the ghost nation um factor is being addressed in this season because it's a i mean it's a huge kind of allegorical thing you know that the show can play with yeah and i feel like um season one there were so many sort of troublesome narratives that we were trying to sort of watch the way in which the show was challenging them in season one. I don't think in season one, they got around to challenging this idea of ghost nation and what they mean. And that's why I keep hammering on this. Cause I'm like, I'm really glad that they were like, Hey, you know what? <laughs> in season two, 
we're going to actually make these people characters, you know? So that's, that's what I keep hoping for. I have no reason to believe otherwise. So, yeah. okay. Uh, Hector speaks our language. Uh, he sort of tries to fend them off as the, as the three of them like run for it. And they find another one of those like conveniently placed uh, elevator ports down to a remote location where they, um, well, I guess it happens a little bit later, but I'm gonna get to it now. Basically, they they run into Armistice, which you Yay. were hoping to see again. Yeah. Yay, uh, Felix, who I was hoping to see again, and Sylvester, who I think none of us cared if we saw. No, again. so I actually, in uh, fact, I kind of thought he was dead. I guess I remembered wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. Uh, we got we got our two hapless techs and Armistice. Armistice has a robot arm. Super fun. Oh yeah, and that's um, a great bit of special effects. Actually, they, the, the way yeah. that when we see because it's a close up and she's manipulating something, and yeah, yeah. Um, I like I like her. I like her robot arm. Yeah, it's not it's not like and it's not the white goo. It's like a it's a proper robotic arm. Yeah. Uh, some kind of Bucky Barn shit there. And uh, yeah, she's she's got like Sylvester holding a grenade under his chin, basically like keep him quiet, stuff like that, which is a great solution, I think. And there seems and... to be a little affection between Maeve and Felix, which uh, coming from Maeve, which is interesting. I, I like that a little bit. And Tandy Newton is so great at playing that that sharp kind of you know, hardness, but then a little bit gives way a little bit to warmth. I think that, you know, she pitches that really well. Yeah. She, one of my favorite Maeve lines from season one, I think it was in the finale where she, she's with Felix and he's been like really nice to her. And she's like, you're a poor excuse for a human. And I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. You know that's what a I great mean? line. Like, yeah. Yeah. She really likes him. Um, And I, and I did in my like anxiety to get to armistice and Felix, I did skip over this scene where we find out that, um, like that the Hector plot line, which involves like this woman, Isabella, who we loved, who died and all this sort of stuff is something that's based on Sizemore's uh, real life. And I really love the reveal of this because she's like, oh, that's so sad. Was it something in your life? Maeve asks him and Sizemore is like, oh, yeah, but she didn't die. She just left me. And Maeve's like, yeah. oh, so you killed her in a narrative. Yeah, that's really sad. <laughs> like, like that's yeah. pathetic sad. Yeah. Um, and we find out that like he's created Hector as this like idealized version of himself, um, which is something that never occurred to me uh, watching season one. But I guess that's something we can look for. Um, and, yeah. and that's a fun, a fun thing for him to grapple with that he has to travel with this really deeply handsome, <laughs> idealized, brave. A uh, sexy version of himself, and then he's so mad that the that that Maeve and Hector like violated their programming and got together. Yeah, you know? like that's well, an interesting thing. Yeah, he like comes up and he forcibly like shoves their hands apart. He's like, "No, what is this? No." Yeah. Um, which is both funny and interesting, and and it ties into what's going on with Dolores and. Because I think what I thought in season one was Maeve was kind of the only one who had this weird like deep familial con- I mean I guess defying your programming to fall in love which seems to be kind of what like Hector and Maeve are doing is different than what Maeve and Dolores are doing which is having this very tight familial connection to someone that they were programmed to love Maeve's daughter and Dolores's father I guess Teddy was always like someone that Dolores was programmed to love too yeah. but like he was so such a nothing that it was like hard for me to really examine that but like her reaction to seeing her father uh kind of surprised me actually yeah and it was it was it was touching you know um because he was like this like thing from like a distant version of herself and you know but it still meant something i I like that scene 
Yeah, it's it's good to watch when Evan Rachel Wood slips in and out of her southern accent, right? The mm-hmm. uh, her 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 rancher's daughter accent because she's like, "Oh, daddy, I'm so sorry, we'll mm-hmm. fix you," mm-hmm. you know, like that's her slipping into the rancher daughter character that she like doesn't have a full grip on clearly, like when she is whoever. But yeah, this uh the abernathy character we should remind everyone like has not only been her father um but in a and has been programmed like to find the train that's another personality that he's grappling with but then he also had this like weird third personality that we met last season which was like he was a leader of a cult yes, <laughs> in the right. desert yeah yeah i think he was called like the professor character and he liked to quote shakespeare so he's he's back with a little bit more Shakespeare for us, he says, I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine tears, mine own tears scald. He's doing King Lear, mm. which is a perfect, like, you know, violent delights, violent ends. That comes from him. That's Romeo and Juliet. But him doing Lear here, obviously, as he plays the, like, confused father figure with the loyal daughter attending to him sort of thing is, of course, you know, a little on the nose for English majors, but... Um, uh, Apropos, so he, yeah, because he said he says the violent delights line the, the, for the first time in in the in yeah. the first season, right? When when he yeah. first starts glitching, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he originated that catchphrase, right? <laughs> well, I mean, all the way to Raj India. Yeah. Well, okay, Shakespeare. Yeah. All right, fine, fine. Bill Shakespeare did it, but yeah, it, like it, it became this like weird trigger phrase. Um, and he, you know, he quoted Shakespeare a few times in season one, and so like as soon as he started talking in this i was like i was like oh here's some here's some more shakespeare for us um and yeah and so then we get so so there's this whole dolores stuff where dolores feels like really invested uh so this complicates her race narrative we talked last week right where it seems like okay william and dolores are racing towards a goal but now dolores is complicated by this other mission which is like she wants to protect her father mm-hmm. uh, and that puts her at odds with Charlotte who wants to capture her father so that's like a little splintered off yeah. the way in which we can loop the Charlotte and Bernard stuff into the Dolores stuff um, but Dolores is like immediately protective of her father not so much Bernard and I'm not sure why she has so much animosity towards Bernard like kind of when last we saw them it you know like we saw Bernard and Dolores kind of meet in the finale last season they had kept them apart all season. We saw her talk to Arnold, but she's got this like weird animosity towards Bernard, perhaps a resentment that like this human that she loved, Arnold, like has been turned into this robot. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really what it is. is. Yeah, yeah. She's like, it's not, you're not him. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but we get a sort of like a reversal of all the times that Arnold has sat down with Dolores and like, you know, given her information, she sits down with Bernard and she's the one sort of with the with the upper hand here. Um, and she asks him to fix her father. And Bernard, like whatever infusion, robot infusion that he gave himself in episode one uh, is wearing off because mm-hmm. he's he's the tremors back. He's glitching hard. He's trying to sort of like fix her father. He finds out he like discovers that uh, what we kind of already knew that like you know there's this massive file in Abernathy's head. What is unclear to me, what seemed possible to me, is that he downloaded the file onto that tablet. Do you know? Right. Like yeah. mm-hmm. he might have had time to do that. He hard ported <laughs> into Abernathy. I love it. And uh <laughs> he might have had time to do that. So like even though Charlotte walks away from this conflict, uh, where she attacks the fort and she gets Abernathy, even though she gets that, um, 
we uh it's possible that Bernard is holding on to that information, you know. Yeah. Um, which would explain why Charlotte's so pissed <laughs> later on. So we'll see. Um, but back to like Dolores talking to Bernard, she asks if he's ever been outside the park. She says this and she says, uh, you know, we're a kind that will never know death and yet we're fighting to live. And there's kind of a beauty in that. And, um, this goes back to something we were talking about before in terms of immortality. Who's immortal? What does that mean? Can you be a human if you never die? Sort of. Thing. Yeah, I mean, if because if the first season was about consciousness, this is maybe more like, okay, what do you do with that? And what do you do yeah. with the knowledge that someday consciousness could end? Or what if it didn't end? And then how do you shape your life? And, you know, um, so it's just taking the first season's kind of philosophy and expanding on it. Yeah. Um, and then one more one more thing I glossed over, and I do apologize for skipping around chronologically that I want to, before we get back on track, is when Armistice shows up with a flamethrower and Hector goes, she has a dragon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's like a, that's a nice little, I feel like there was a l- few little like Game of Thronesy crossovers last season. So the fact that we've got this like blonde, super blonde lady with a flamethrower yeah. is, our, is our Daenerys moment. I also, you know, I always got to be like, kudos to the stunt guy who put the suit on and the gel and whatever they do to set himself on fire like it's such a scary horrifying thing to do for like a silly tv show but like hey hats off to him yeah exactly um and then this this is kind of like an easy episode to get through because there aren't as many uh plot lines i think as we're usually trying to deal with like mainly it's this like dolores stand at this fort where we find out that she recruited these all these confederados not because she wanted to ally with them but because she wanted to like use them basically as collateral damage as insulation right against her team well her team which like is like a has this sort of like a creepy um antifa aesthetic they're like they have got this like black block like you know her people because they have black cloth on their face not that we find anything about antifa's uh politics creepy (laughs) i find their look creep i find their look intentionally intimidating right that's that's sort of something that they're going for and and this is this is what's going on here this is not a pro-nazi podcast (laughs) no it is not but just sort of like that, I that black block aesthetic, yeah, I think, yeah. is is like a good way to sort of distinguish them from anyone else that they might take on. But but Jonathan Tucker's character, Major Craddock, is like super pissed that the Confederados have been looped in just to serve as like a human shield. Um, Dolores says Angela blow up some TNT. I don't know. There's there's war tactics. Charlotte basically, I think, goes in the back door to get Abernathy and um, zooms off with him. And so Dolores is going to send some for people after, after Abernathy, but um, she's still on her main goal. And then we get Teddy's test. And I'm wondering what you make of this here. Yeah. So what happens is that Dolores is like, take him out back and shoot him with the rest uh, about Craddock. And, um, you know, I think she's just trying to see, obviously she's trying to see like how much she's changed him. Like if he's broken free of his programming or really if she's in line with what he wants to do uh, or what she wants to do. And, uh, you know, Teddy can't in the end shoot the guy, you know, like execution style and lets him go. And I, you know, Dolores looks disappointed. I don't know if we're supposed to take out of that, like, uh oh, now Teddy's in trouble. Or if maybe Teddy will function as some as as the person who brings Dolores back from the brink, you know, because she's becoming bad in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. I felt like Dolores was looking at him like a like a puppy she was gonna have to put down. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I showed Teddy this thing and he's not on board. And that means maybe he's he's not worthy to join me in the Valley Beyond. Even though she kept saying like, you're all I have left, Teddy. My father's glitching right. out. It's just you and me. And then like she asked him to kill someone and he's like, no, no. run. <laughs> Uh, the other the other thing is, um, you know, Craddock seems to spot some weakness, right, in Teddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, by weakness, I just mean like, you know, uh, maybe I can flip this guy. So he might be he might be sort of an Achilles heel for Dolores in that sense. Yeah, like, like we assume he'll if, be back, yeah. right? Right. So if Craddock like can work on Teddy, uh, that really might put Dolores in a position where she has to put him down, and that might be why James Marsden winds up in a lake by the end of the uh, two weeks. Uh, yes. But yes. 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 We don't know. Um. All right, and then we get uh the Grace character, uh swimming swimming ashore, and uh if the Bengal tiger washed up. Where we saw the Bengal tiger washed up, then we can assume that she's swimming ashore to Westworld. But we mm-hmm. don't need to assume because two seconds later, uh, Ghost Nation shows up. And maybe so. this is our entry point into their storyline. You know, like like so many stories, Dance with Wolves, like it's a white person entering, uh, you know, something. Uh, maybe that'll be problematic. Maybe it won't. Maybe I think the show has actually been pretty good about commenting on the sort of problematic tropes that. The, the whole premise is set up on. Um, so I'm intrigued. I'm really intrigued what they're going to do with that and with this new character who I kind of already love, even though we barely know her. I know. She's so intrepid. Yeah. Like, I just, I yeah, I like her a lot. Um, and then we cut to Team Maeve. Uh, it's snowing where they are. <laughs> and Sizemore's like, uh, oh, it's supposed to be the Klondike narrative. Uh, they spot a fire. Sizemore definitely finds a decapitated head of a Japanese figure. And then a samurai comes blazing out of the darkness, like gunning for Maeve or uh, katanaing yeah. for Maeve. So welcome to Shogun. Um, yeah, welcome to Shogun World. Do we think that Sizemore didn't know where they were because of the terraforming? <laughs> like, is that It's always why? the terraforming, Joanna. <laughs> no, I also why? think that like he... He was just a writer, and maybe, and he seems to really have focused mainly, mainly on like Westworld stuff. Maybe he just yeah. didn't know. Maybe he's deliberately leading somewhere, although he doesn't seem that conniving. Um, I think in the end, with questions like that, you just got to say terraforming. All right, let's throw our hands up in the air and say terraforming. Welcome to Shogun World. Uh, the episode ends with, uh, forgive me, I don't know the like exact name of the instrument that's being used here, but it's some sort of like. Japanese wind instrument doing the Westworld theme, which yeah. once again must have been really fun for Ramin Chavati to like rescore the Westworld theme with uh, these other instruments. So there we go. Season two, episode three in the bag. This this had basically we're just following, we've got some Bernard stuff, some Maeve stuff, and some Dolores stuff. We don't have a lot of flashbacks. Like episode two is so super flashback heavy to like the way way past and i think i liked that a bit more than what we get here which feels a little action heavy yeah the action that, like yeah. was well done sure. but like it was kind of just like all right like i i don't know yeah. i'm more into like the twisty like mystery like you said backstory stuff um yeah. it's interesting i mean i think she is very good on the show and i really liked her arc last season but like i'm kind of like the Dolores stuff in this episode, at least, I was just like, okay, this is just kind of like Western. Like, I don't like Westerns, but like, right? I don't know. It's feeling a little bit like uh, undercooked and overcooked in a weird way. Yeah. Like, 
I liked the flashback stuff in episode two because it's not like I need Dolores to be in like such a vulnerable position. It's not like I don't like her taking control. No. So it's not like I just need like, you know, simpering, like whatever. But like in season one, we got like Dolores questioning things and mm-hmm. like trying to figure stuff out. And yeah, she was confused and vulnerable, but also like just consistently intriguing to me. And this season, yeah, the like the Wyatt character or the like Messiah character, I just don't find that compelling. Well, so I don't mean to like keep beating this horse, but there's because it's it's there's so much certainty. You know, there's yeah. not a lot of room for deviation or, or like you said questioning. And so like you're like okay, like this is kind of one note. And so then it's like well then I guess Teddy becomes sort of the more interesting because there's variable there, there's variation. Um, you know, so I, I don't I, I guess maybe once her sort of narrative like hitches back onto like into Maves and that they, you know everything kind of t- gets tied together, like maybe Dolores as one you know side of a multifaceted argument or whatever will become more interesting. But right now it's just like so monolithic that I'm just not it, it's not that interesting. I completely agree with you. And um, I just kept waiting for us to like cut back to Maeve, who like is also mm-hmm. single minded in her like. Like, she also has, like, certainty of what she's driving, but there's just, like, softness and nuance in her, like, yeah. like stuff like her being nice to Felix or actually even occasionally being nice to Sizemore. Like, she's just, she's, like, she's exploring the world in just, like, a much more, I guess, human feels like way, whereas Dolores does not feel remotely like what a human would do, uh, even, even, uh, like, I actually don't want to speak to, like, what someone would do after three decades of assault. So like, maybe that is a very human reaction to three decades of assault, but like it's, it's hard for me to find a way in sometimes most of the time with her this season. I'm really hoping that changes up. So yeah. Same. All right. Um, anything else we want to talk about in terms of this week? Um, no, like welcome Katya Hebers. Hebers um, yes. plays Grace. She's exciting. I'm curious about that narrative. Uh, R.I.P. the sexy, but also probably racist guy that she had sex with. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm excited about these new worlds. Yeah, and Shogun World. I, I think it's really fun that they like they were hyping Shogun World. They teased it last season, and the first new world they gave us was definitely not Shogun World. That yeah, was, it was but nice. We got it. Yeah, yeah, but we got it by the end of the episode. So uh, here we go, uh, off to Shogun World, and that is it. Until next time, Richard. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm Rylaws on Twitter, R-I-L-A-W-S, and writing at VF.com. I am also on VF.com, which, uh, you know, we, we just rolled out a paywall a couple weeks, like a week ago, um, thereabouts. Uh, all that means is that I'm, like, working extra hard to make sure that every single thing you click on that I write is worth your time. So, uh, hopefully including anything related to Westworld. So, please subscribe to paywall we're really excited we think this is going to be like a really cool future for for the site anyway so we're over on bf.com you can find me on twitter at joe wrote this this episode is edited by danielle roth produced by dave gonzalez and katie rich until next time these violent delights and violent ends